0: Maybe I like
1: Once again, to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so, just like our new friend iTunes user Nort333 did just this past week. And here is what his or her review says. Amazing recaps, can't get enough of this guy. If you love wrestling, check out this podcast. Simple and to the point, and that is a-okay with me. Thank you very much for taking the time to write that very kind review, Mister or Missus Nort Three Three Three. Glad to have you on board, and I hope you continue to enjoy the show. Now, normally I have a couple things that I go through at the top of this podcast, but there's a lot to cover in this episode, so I'm just going to jump right into it. However, before we go into RAW, there is a pay-per-view to cover, and that would be Judgment Day in Your House, the twenty-fifth pay-per-view under the In Your House banner. And we are live on Sunday, October 18th, 1998, from the Rosemont Horizon in Rosemont, Illinois, or, as the WWE always refers to it, Chicago, even though the Windy City is actually 20 miles away. Some of the other noteworthy shows which have taken place in this same arena include The Wrestling Classic, the 1989 Survivor Series, most recently Backlash 2017, and also Money in the Bank 2011, where CM Punk beat John Cena and then ran off through his hometown crowd with the WWE Championship. This venue also holds the distinction of being one of only two arenas, along with Madison Square Garden, to host three separate WrestleManias, that being WrestleMania 2, WrestleMania 13, and WrestleMania 22. So yes, there's a lot of history in this building. Before the Judgment Day pay-per-view itself began, we had a live episode of Sunday Night Heat where some interesting things occurred. Steve Blackman defeated Bradshaw, and Blackman was then attacked by the Blue Blazer after the match. The Oddities defeated Los Pariquas, and the Headbangers then attacked the Oddities' friends, the Insane Clown Posse, afterwards, but the New Age Outlaws then ran to the ring and fought off the Headbangers. The Godfather defeated Farouk, more on that in just a moment. Scorpio defeated Jeff Jarrett when Al Snow distracted Double J, and Triple H, who was still on crutches after his recent knee surgery, handed over his WWF Intercontinental Championship to Ken Shamrock, who you may recall won the IC title tournament this past Monday on Raw. Unfortunately for Hunter, later on in the show when he was leaving in his car, Shamrock jumped him and slammed the door on his injured knee. Ouch. But let's go back to the godfather Farouk match for a moment. This was actually noteworthy for several reasons. Number one, this was the first time we had seen the Godfather on television in over two months, mainly because the last time we saw him was the August 17th episode of Raw, where Bart Gunn almost murdered him during their Brawl for All fight. Number two, this is actually the first time we're seeing what ends up becoming the signature look for the Godfather's character, brightly colored vest, matching hat, sunglasses, chain around his neck, and of course he had two hose with him as well. For the record, Farouk turned down the hose and they had a match, which the Godfather won with a kick to the chest. Quite the finisher. Number three, after the match, D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry entered the ring, seemingly to congratulate the Godfather, but then they attacked him. Yes, that's right, the Nation of Domination is further cementing their breakup, on Sunday night heat. I would not have guessed that. Fortunately for Godfather, The Rock then ran down to the ring and chased D.Lo and Mark Henry away. And one final note about this match is that once it was over, when Farouk was walking up the aisle, he was approached by The Jackal who whispered something in his ear. Now that may not seem significant, but when you see where this eventually leads in the coming weeks, you'll realize why I singled it out to be mentioned. So stay tuned. Our first official match on the Judgment Day card was Al Snow versus Marvelous Mark Merrow, who was accompanied by WWF Women's Champion Jacqueline. And yes, Jackie is still weaving that chunk of Sable's hair in amongst her own. Before the match began, Jeff Jarrett came to the ring and attempted to take Merrow's place as Snow's opponent, since the two of them have had a budding rivalry lately. However, referee Tim White refused to allow it, so Jarrett just headed backstage. All right then. And as for the match itself, Snow ended up beating Mero with his Snowplow finisher. Our next contest was a six-man tag team match, Sober Hawk, Animal, and Draws versus the Disciples of Apocalypse, and Paul Ellering. Remember that LOD are from Chicago, so they're over big time here tonight. Also, the three of them are collectively announced as the Legion of Doom, so I suppose that makes Draws a full-fledged member at this point. The match only went about five minutes, but it did have a noteworthy finish, Animal put 8-ball on his shoulders, and Hawk then came off the top rope to hit him with a flying clothesline, but before Hawk could score the pin, Draws snuck in behind him and pinned 8-ball himself, giving the victory to LOD. Animal didn't seem to mind that Draws stole the pinfall, but Hawk was rather annoyed by this, and rightfully so. Also, as a quick side note, it's really strange to see Hawk with a full head of hair instead of his trademark, uh, whatever the hell you'd call that haircut that he had. Our next match was for the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship. Champion Taka Michinoku, accompanied by Yamaguchi-san, versus Christian, accompanied by Gangrel. Yes, that's right, folks. This is Christian's first ever match in the WWF. Also, yes, you heard me correctly. Christian is competing in a light heavyweight match, even though his build weight throughout his career is 239 pounds. Not exactly a Lucha Libre. So anyway, even though this was Christian's first match, they let him go out there with Taka for almost nine minutes, and the match was quite good. The finish came when Taka hit Christian with a Tornado DDT, and then he lifted Christian up for his finisher, the Michinoku driver, so let's pick it up from there.
2: He's learning, but he needs to learn to go ahead and put his opponents away when he's got the opportunity. Oh, wait a minute. He went for the driver, but it got reversed. heavyweight champion, Christian! I gotta consider that a big upset, ladies and gentlemen, because there's no track record, there's no history here with Christian, but in his first outing, he has become the WWF light heavyweight champion!
1: Yes, that's right, in his first ever match in the WWF, Christian defeats Taka to become the new light heavyweight champion, and as you could hear there, he actually got a surprisingly good-sized pop for it. Perhaps the reason for that pop is because Christian just ended what had become the longest title reign in the company as Taka became the first ever light heavyweight champion 10 months ago and no one had beaten him for the belt until now. Christian is now your second ever light heavyweight champion with more emphasis on the heavyweight part than the light part. Next up we had Val Venus accompanied by Terry Runnels versus Goldust. For those of you scoring at home, this is the first time we've officially seen Goldust appear on pay-per-view since the very eventful Survivor Series 1997. He had been calling himself the artist formerly known as Goldust from December to May, and then he was simply Dustin Runnels up until recently, but now, Goldust is officially back, and he also gets a nice-sized pop from the Chicago crowd on his way to the ring. The finish of the match came when Terry got up on the ring apron to distract Goldust, but her plan backfired when he kicked Val right in the crotch behind referee Jimmy Corderis's back. Corderis then turned around, and surprisingly, that low blow was enough to keep Val down for the count of three, and presumably also enough to make Terry quite unhappy since her plans for later tonight were ruined. After that, it was time for a European title match: champion D'Lo Brown versus challenger X-Pac, accompanied by China. Once again, these two had a very nice mid card match, and they went for almost 14 minutes. The finish came when DeLo accidentally ran into referee Mike Kyoto, knocking him down to the ground. From there, Mark Henry came out from backstage and distracted China, which allowed DeLo to hit X Pac in the face with the European title belt. Henry then rolled Kyoto back into the ring, and he counted for the one, the two, but not the three. X Pac was surprisingly able to kick out. From there, D'Lo went to the top rope, and in what was basically the exact same scenario where he lost the European title a few weeks ago, he essentially just jumped off the top turnbuckle in a straight line, and right into a mid-air X-Factor. Kyoto counted again, and this time, he counted to three. Your winner, and the new WWF European champion for the second time in the past month, X-Pac. A bit of a curious decision, it seems, since D'Lo and Mark Henry seem to be getting a bit of a push lately, but I suppose we'll see where it goes. After that match, we went backstage where Michael Cole informed us that there's a rumor going around tonight that Paul Bearer was seen entering The Undertaker's locker room. Hmm. Stay tuned, folks, because we're going to have more on that one later. Our next match was a WWF tag team title match, Champions, the New Age Outlaws, versus Challengers, the Headbangers. Much like the X-Pac D-Lo match, this one also went for 14 minutes, and I have no earthly idea why, because these two teams should not be going that long. The finish of the match came when Road Dog basically said, eh, fuck it, and just drilled Mosh in the head with a boombox, causing the disqualification. Interestingly, about a month ago, Billy Gunn more or less walked out of DX when Road Dogg intentionally got them disqualified in their match against Southern Justice, but this time around, Billy is totally fine with it for some reason. So, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Attitude Era Booking. We then went back to Michael Cole, who confirmed that Paul Bearer is now currently in Kane's locker room, but Cole was then interrupted by Mankind and Mr. Sacco. Amusingly, Mankind said that Ken Shamrock's promos are, quote, the second leading decision in teenage suicide, so file that one under Things You Would Never Be Allowed to Say in 2017. And this then segued us into our Intercontinental title match, new champion Ken Shamrock versus Mankind. Now, this match had a pretty goofy finish, but I do have to say that I enjoyed it. So after almost 15 minutes of action, Shamrock managed to put the ankle lock on Mankind in the middle of the ring, but Mankind did not want to give Shamrock the satisfaction of tapping out to his move, so he came up with a... creative solution.
2: The pain must be riveting! What the hell?! Mankind is, is applying the Man of a Claw to himself. What? I don't think Shamrock's aware. Mankind has just applied the Man of a Claw to himself. What? And Shamrock retains the Intercontinental Championship. Wait a minute. The winner of
0: this bout, as a result of the Mandible Claw, Kim yep. Shamrock. The man...
2: That's exactly what happened! Shamrock can't believe it! He says it was my ankle lock that got the job done! But the referee's telling him that mankind applied the man of himself!
1: Okay, so first of all, when has the announcer ever gotten on the mic and specified which finisher was the cause of a match stopping? That has to be a first. But of course, Shamrock becomes enraged that referee Jack Doan stopped the match due to the mandible claw and not the ankle lock, so he starts kicking Mankind, and then he gives a belly-to-belly suplex to the ref for good measure. However, Mankind then puts Socko on his hand and managed to put the sock into Shamrock's mouth, so even though Foley didn't win the title, he did get some revenge on the world's most dangerous man. And yes, Socko is still over huge. Our second-to-last match of the evening was The Rock versus Mark Henry. Before the match, Henry grabbed a mic and read a poem to China about how he hopes that one day they can have children together, which I would imagine is not something you typically say to someone who you are suing for sexual harassment, but what do I know? Pretty short match here, with somewhat of a surprising result. So after The Rock hit The People's elbow on Henry, D'Lo Brown ran out from backstage to distract Rock. When The People's champ turned back around, Henry hit him with a clothesline, then followed it up with a big splash. With D'Lo holding down The Rock's feet out of the referee's view, Mark Henry scored the three count and got the shocking upset victory over the number one contender to the WWF title. Yes, that's right. Mark Henry actually got a pay-per-view victory over The Rock. I did not see that coming. And frankly, I have no idea why it happened, but I'm sure it's probably one of the career highlights for the World's Strongest Man. And then it was time for our main event, The Undertaker versus Kane for the vacant WWF Championship with special guest referee Stone Cold Steve Austin. Now, remember what Vince McMahon said on the previous episode of Raw. If Austin does not award the title to either Taker or Kane, Vince will fire him right on the spot. So let's see how this plays out. So Austin actually did act as a pretty impartial referee for the majority of the match, but then we got to the finish. At one point, Kane reversed an Irish whip attempt and threw Undertaker into the corner, where he accidentally collided with Stone Cold. From there, for some reason, Kane then chokeslammed Austin, which seems like a dumb move because you need a goddamn referee in order to win the match. Undertaker then started putting the boots to Austin as well, so clearly, these guys aren't grasping the concept of how wrestling matches work. With Stone Cold laid out on the canvas, the Brothers of Destruction then resumed fighting each other, with Kane getting the better of his brother by hitting him with a chokeslam. From there, Paul Bearer emerged from backstage with a steel chair. Bearer told Kane that he wanted to hit the Undertaker with the chair, but when Kane turned around, Bearer hit his own son in the back with the chair. Kane no-sold it, but then Taker grabbed the chair and absolutely clobbered Kane in the head with it, knocking him to the ground. With Bearer looking on and smiling, The Undertaker went for the cover, but Stone Cold refused to count, and here is what happened next.
2: The Undertaker has got this one, one, Kane is knocked out, and to stop doing a damn thing, but letting The Undertaker know how he feels about it, well he counted do one, Undertaker! Wham! Got, got Undertaker came it, the God! Undertaker and down! Off to counting! Two! Three! Alts The Undertaker! It came down!
0: And the winner of the match is...
1: So what you just heard there was Austin hitting the Undertaker with a stunner, then smacking him with the chair, and with both Brothers of Destruction knocked out on the canvas, Austin counted to three, thereby refusing to award the WWF title to either of them, and directly defying Vince McMahon's proclamation that he will fire Austin if he did not raise the arm of either the Undertaker or Kane. Austin then tells Vince to wheel his ass out to the ring, but when he doesn't, Stone Cold says he'll go in the back and find Vince himself. Amusingly, as soon as he walks through the curtain, we can see Bruce Pritchard seated at the gorilla position, and he immediately tells Austin where he thinks Vince is. However, after walking around backstage for a while, Austin is unable to find Mr. McMahon, so he heads back to the ring. Stone Cold says he knew Vince didn't have the balls to fire him, but then... the video screen which was hanging over the entrance stage lifts up, and we can see Mr. McMahon in his wheelchair, flanked by the big boss man and several police dogs, so I'm gonna pick it up from there. Oh, and one quick note when you hear this clip, early on you're gonna hear the fans laugh at an inopportune moment, with Jerry Lawler then calling them morons, and that's because one fan throws a shirt which lands right on Vince's head while he's talking. I just felt that needed clarification because otherwise you'd probably be wondering why the fans were laughing during such a serious moment. So with that being said, Take a listen to how Mr. McMahon responds to Stone Cold blatantly disobeying his order.
0: You got something you want to say to me? Austin, I wish I could
3: say that your services are no longer required. Morons, but that's not not what I'm feeling. You said, that I didn't have the balls to fire you. Well,
0: uh, I can't hear a word you're saying because you ain't got 18,000 people calling you an asshole. I would it- Speak up and put a little bass in your voice.
3: I would advise everyone here to get their cameras out and take a photo of that man because you're seeing the last of Stone Cold, Steve Austin. What? No. Stone Cold. Stone Cold, screw you.
0: You're fired. He did it. You might want to say that again, because I think you just said that I was fired. Am I correct? (laughs) Screw you, Austin. You're fired.
1: So there you have it. True to his word, Vince McMahon has fired Stone Cold Steve Austin. From there, Austin requests that they play his music, and he proceeds to chug some beers and flip off the crowd one last time as Jim Ross informs us that there was never anyone better. And that is how Judgment Day ends. Pretty solid show with a shocking ending, as Stone Cold is now gone from the WWF forever. Certainly, we will never see him ever again. But did the fans tune in to watch... Well, Judgment Day ended up achieving 327,000 pay-per-view buys, which is definitely solid for an October pay-per-view. In fact, when you compare that to last October's pay-per-view, Bad Blood, that show only did about 216,000 buys, so once again they're seeing huge gains in their year-to-year pay-per-view numbers. I guess it just goes to show you that if you have a compelling product, people will definitely tune in to watch. Someone deliver that memo to 2017 Vince McMahon, please. And so, coming out of that main event, Stone Cold is fired from the company, we still have no WWF champion, and The Undertaker now seems to have some sort of alliance with Paul Bearer. How will those angles play out on Raw? Let's find out. It is Monday, October 19th, 1998, and we are live from the Bradley Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in the same arena include the recent Fastlane 2017, where Goldberg defeated Kevin Owens for the WWE Universal Championship, No Way Out 2002, where the NWO made their debut in the WWF, and the main event two in 1989, more commonly known as the event where the Mega Powers broke up and Randy Savage turned heel on Hulk Hogan. We open with a recap of last night's main event and the subsequent firing of Stone Cold, and then we kick right into the show itself. Of course, before we begin, I must also mention some of the noteworthy signs in the crowd, so here are some of them. Mr. Socko was in China. Vince is a cocksucker. No fat chicks. Show us your penis. Bossman tosses McMahon's salad. Stop copying ECW. I'm Lawler's love child, Mankind Makes Me Horny, and a drawing of a pair of lips with the phrase, Mr. Ass, sit here. Gross. So we officially begin the show with upbeat music playing, and the cameras then pan up to show us that streamers, confetti, and black balloons are falling from the ceiling. We then see that the quote-unquote entire roster is walking to the ring under the orders of Vince McMahon. I don't think it actually was the entire roster, but indeed most of the big names are out there, including The Rock, Mankind, and Ken Shamrock, mixed in with a whole bunch of jobbers like Kai and Tai, The Oddities, and Los Barrique was just to name a few. Once everyone assembles in the ring, Mr. McMahon wheels himself out from backstage, accompanied by the Stooges, a cop holding a police dog on a leash, and the Big Boss Man, who is still wearing a ski mask, despite the fact that he already revealed his face to the world last week on Raw. Vince has a mic, and he then proceeds to talk for about six straight minutes, so I'll edit it down a bit and give you some of the most noteworthy parts.
2: Thanks to Stone
3: As a result of an individual who is no longer gainfully employed here in the World Wrestling Federation, we have no World Wrestling Federation champion as we speak. However, I assure you that on the night... Of November 15 at the Survivor Series. As a matter of fact, I guarantee you. Uh oh, there goes that word again. <laughs> I guarantee you.
2: Yes! Take it the
3: bank! Nonetheless, I guarantee you on November 15, at the end of that evening, we will have an undisputed WWF champion. Because on that night at the Survivor Series, 16 WWF superstars will compete in a one-night tournament to determine just who will be the next undisputed WWF champion. Whoa! St. Louis, Missouri at Survivor Series. So what did it feel like? Many of you are saying to yourself, my God, what's it like to be Vince McMahon? What's it like to have the balls to fire Stone Cold Steve Austin? Woo! I really wondered. I wondered if Austin provoked me, how I would feel. And last night, I searched. And last night, when I fired Austin, I'll admit, it felt pretty damn good. At the end of the evening, after asking that question again, I was convinced it felt great. And then this morning, you know, When you look into that mirror, bright and early when you first get up, that soul-searching. All right, Vince McMahon, how did you feel after firing Stone Cold Steve Austin? You know what it felt like to me this morning? What? It was better than sex. Whoa! That's good, JR! He's wicked.
2: Better than sex!
3: Which brings me as to why each and every one of you stand before me as WWF superstars. Hopefully, you all learned the lesson that Stone Cold learned last night. Hopefully, no one in that ring will ever cross the bus. Because none of you are as big as Vince McMahon. You know, all that Austin 316 paraphernalia out there, T-shirts, what have you, another rumor going around that it's going like hotcakes, because now Austin 316, that's a collector's item, you see. Now there's a new expression, a new expression that's going to be sweeping the nation, sweeping the globe, and that's... McMahon 316.
2: Oh, what are those shirts coming out?
3: And McMahon 316 says, I've got the brass to fire your axe.
0: <laughs>
3: Thank you very much. That Thank you,
1: gentlemen so clearly Mr. McMahon appears to be drunk with power, but the big news here is that we will finally have a new WWF champion in four weeks at the Survivor Series when a 16-man tournament is held. Perhaps they were so happy with last week's 8-man Intercontinental Title Tournament that they decided to up the stakes even further? Very ambitious. However, something interesting happens after Vince finishes speaking. Up on the Titantron, they cut to a live video of Stone Cold Steve Austin in his truck, presumably outside of the arena. And, in a bit of a creepy detail given recent events, we see that Stone Cold is holding a large assault rifle. Yeesh. Jim Ross then exclaims, Austin is here, he's here, and he's armed. Hoo boy. So after a commercial break, we then go backstage, where we see the Stooges, the big boss man, and a police officer escorting the chairman to his office. Vince tells the bossman that his family is in the luxury box, and he asks him to take them to the airport. We then get the rare acknowledgement that someone can actually see the cameraman, as Vince requests for the camera guy to stay with him, because he wants everything documented on video, so there are witnesses. And then we cut back to Austin, who is sitting in the front seat of his truck, polishing his enormous rifle. Once again, file this under Things You Would Never See on Raw in 2017. I feel like if this were a real situation, everyone in the arena should probably be worried for their safety, but because this is wrestling, we just kick right into our first match of the evening WWF Intercontinental Champion Ken Shamrock versus WWF European Champion X Pac, who is accompanied by China, and no, neither of their belts are on the line during this match. Also, at this point, Shamrock's nickname of the World's Most Dangerous Man may no longer apply since there is someone outside of the building right now who is presumably getting ready to commit murder. Before the match begins, we get footage from earlier today where DX met up with Motley Crew on their tour bus. We're then informed that Motley Crew will actually be performing on the next episode of Raw, and I'm roughly 99% certain that it will be completely edited out from the WWE Network. Probably for the best, especially since they don't end up playing Dr. Feelgood. But anyway, back to the Shamrock X-Pac match. So about a minute into it, two police officers make their way to ringside, presumably to act as increased security, with Stone Cold working outside. Instead, however, they walk over to China and handcuff her. Nice little swerve there, since this is likely related to Mark Henry's ongoing sexual harassment lawsuit against her. Once China is taken away, the match continues, with Shamrock mostly on the offensive. However, we then had another visitor, as Mankind walked to ringside. He jumped up on the ring apron, and an angry Shamrock then pulled him into the ring. Shamrock then bear-hugged Mankind, presumably to set him up for a belly-to-belly suplex, but fully countered by putting the mandible claw on Shamrock in full view of referee Tim White, who somehow did not disqualify X-Pac for that. Maybe it's not a DQ since Foley was pulled into the ring and had to defend himself? I have no idea. Anyway, Shamrock then does manage to hit Foley with a belly-to-belly suplex, but when he turned back around, X-Pac hit Shamrock with an X-Factor, covered him, and got the three count. That's right, your new Intercontinental Champion just took a pinfall one short week after winning the belt. Is this 1998 or 2017? I can't tell. As soon as the match ended, Pac got up and ran up the aisle so he could check on China. We then cut backstage where we saw police officers putting her in a cop car as the New Age Outlaws protested. X-Pac did eventually make his way to the scene, and while he was talking with some cops, for the second week in a row, he let a naughty word slip. What's
2: a, what's a deal?
1: For the record, the word bullshit was indeed censored on the initial broadcast in 1998, but the WWE Network leaves it uncensored in all its glory, because that's what you pay $9.99 a month for, people. So DX walks off, but we then proceed to follow two of the police officers, and one of them says, Hey, isn't that Steve Austin? Sure enough, they walk over to Austin's truck and ask him what he's doing. He steps out of the car and even proceeds to show off a handgun to the officers, not the assault rifle this time, and both cops tell him that it is, quote, a nice toy. Austin then signs autographs for both of their kids, and the cops walk off, so apparently they don't give a shit that a man with a weapon is creepily lurking outside of an arena full of 19,000 people. We then cut to Vince's office, where he asks what the hell kind of cops they have around here, which does seem to be a fair question. Vince then looks toward the police officer in the room with him, and he tells him to go confront Austin and use his firearm if necessary. The cop then tells Vince in a thick Chicago accent, quote, I didn't come here to endanger my life. Screw you. And then he walks off with his police dog. Apparently, Vince didn't get the memo that the Milwaukee Police Department's motto is to neither serve nor protect. So we then go back to the arena for our next match, the headbangers versus animal and draws, who are accompanied by a non-face painted, street clothes wearing hawk. Before the match begins, Mosh grabs a mic and mocks Road Dogs' patented ladies and gentlemen routine, and Thrasher then finishes it by assuming Mr. Ass's role and saying he has two words for us, you suck. Yes, that's right, over the past few weeks, Thrasher has literally tried to make you suck into a catchphrase. Spoiler, it does not work. So this was a pretty short match, but it did give us one retroactively unfortunate soundbite. Mosh and Thrasher picked Draws up for a suplex, but instead of dropping him on his back, they dropped him face-first to the canvas instead, and, well, listen to how Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler call it.
2: Nice double teaming by the uh, former... Oh, oh, man! Ross dropped right on his head from that move little vertical flapjack there by the Headbangers, and Draws up Gee. and over. Nice move by, by Draws there, got a near fall. can believe Draws is still
1: conscious. Yeesh. So anyway, the finish of the match came when Animal and Draws Irish whipped the Headbangers into each other from opposite corners. Animal then clotheslined Mosh over the top rope, but meanwhile, Hawk was applauding Draws's effort from outside the ring, which somehow distracted him. That allowed Thrasher to roll up Draws, grab a handful of tights, and score the three-count, giving the victory to the Headbangers. After the match ended, Draws yelled at Hawk, and when Animal came over, Draws seemingly told him that Hawk distracted him, so Animal also yelled at Hawk. Draws then took his pinky and thumb and put them toward his mouth in the universal symbol for drinking alcohol, even though Hawk was clearly completely sober. My question is, why is Draws so mad at Hawk when Thrasher clearly pulled his tights during the pinfall? I mean, wouldn't he be more at fault than Hawk, who literally did nothing but clap supportively? So Animal and Draws then exited the ring together, leaving Hawk behind, and I can't believe they made me do it, but I actually did feel bad for poor Hawk here. I mean, he's gotten sober and he's doing the best he can, but now his best friend has abandoned him to team up with a younger wrestler. I would probably feel even worse for Hawk, if not for the fact that he spent the past 15 years stiffing jobbers and no-selling everyone's offense, but I guess that's neither here nor there. Anyway, we then go backstage, where Patterson, Briscoe, and Commissioner Slaughter all decide that they should go get coffee for Vince, so they all leave him alone in his office. He asks them where the hell they're going, which I would say is a completely legitimate question. I assume the point of the segment was to show that the Stooges are all getting nervous that Austin is around, and they just want to save their own asses, but they did a really bad job of conveying it. And after a commercial break, we go back to Vince's office, where we hear knocking on the door. Vince nervously wheels himself over toward it, the door opens slightly, and we see... Mr. Socko pop through the door. Mankind then enters and tells Vince that he and Sheriff Sako are his new heads of security, and he brought a trash bag full of... something with him to help Vince kill the time. Vince then gets a pretty nervous look on his face, as though he may actually prefer to take his chances with Stone Cold. Pretty amusing. We then go back to the arena, where the Undertaker's music hits, and he walks down the ramp alongside Paul Bearer. Yes, that's right, The Undertaker and Paul Bearer have reunited for the first time since SummerSlam 1996 when Bearer turned on Taker and aligned himself with the aforementioned mankind. Taker heads to the ring and grabs a microphone, and I'm going to play his promo for you right here because he proceeds to tell us the dark days are coming to the WWF.
4: Why is Paul Bearer back? As you can plainly see, there has been a reconciliation made. Brother Paul has come home to lead my ministry of darkness. And I'm sure that there's those who can't understand because they have no vision how I could align myself once more with such a despicable, evil, maniacal individual. Well, if those aren't reasons enough, I don't guess I can explain it any better. What we have is someone with vision, someone who truly understands the power of the darkness. He allowed me to clear my head and refocus on what it is I am here for. Now what we have is a beginning of a new era, and we will unleash with our Ministry of Darkness a plague for which the World Wrestling Federation has never seen, nor will it be ever understood amongst those who do not relish in the darkness. So now those of you who do not declare shall be declared.
3: I used you because you're stupid, you're weak, you can't even speak for yourself, you turned your back on me twice. The first time was eight weeks ago, the last time
2: was last night, boy.
3: You could never understand the darkness came. That is why I'll never have any use for you again.
2: He's your son, for God's sakes, you rotund demon.
4: You know, Cain, I know there's a thought that's been burning in your mind for years. You really want to know what happened the day you caught on fire. Well, listen, and listen close. I set that fire. What? And I set it because you were weak as a child, and you're weak now. And we have no room for the weak. Only the strong
1: shall survive. As soon as The Undertaker finishes speaking, however... Kane's music hits. The Big Red Machine emerges from backstage, and he's wheeling a casket. He has his voice box in his hands, which he then holds up to his throat, and he proceeds to say this. You and I, tonight,
4: casket match.
2: There's a talent, apparently... Cain challenging The Undertaker for a casket match. He cut right to the chase. A man of few words.
4: And brother,
1: you will rest in peace. So there you have it. It will be Kane versus The Undertaker tonight in a casket match. But the bigger story here is obviously the fact that The Undertaker has reunited with Paul Bearer in order to form what he calls the Ministry of Darkness. Truthfully his reasoning for reconciling with Bearer is actually pretty weak. It basically just amounts to, he's really evil and I respect that. Not only that, but Bearer had spent a fair majority of 1998 calling Taker's mother a whore, and Taker beat the crap out of Bearer on multiple occasions over the past few months, but I guess they're both willing to let bygones be bygones for some reason. Also, if you recall back in 1997, in the months before Kane debuted, Bearer was telling everyone that it was the Undertaker who set the fire that burned down the funeral home and killed his parents, while Taker was claiming that it was actually Kane who set the fire. Well, in an interesting bit of retconning, we now know that Bearer had been telling the truth. It was indeed the Undertaker who set the fire. And, of course, because this is professional wrestling, when you admit to murdering your parents, your brother will immediately show up and, instead of beating the shit out of you or calling the police, he challenges you to a casket match. Clearly, that's the most obvious course of action. However, with all that ridiculousness being said, I did still pop for The Undertaker and Paul Bearer being reunited. I mean, come on, they had previously been a great pair for over five years, from 1991 to 96. This tandem reminds me of my childhood, and I love it. But anyway, if you somehow did not watch Rod during the Attitude Era, your first question right now is likely, what the hell is the Ministry of Darkness? Well stay tuned folks, because it's going to get good, and by good I mean bad, depending on who you ask. But as for me personally, I love it. So from there, we go backstage, where Mankind and Sheriff Sacco are with Vince McMahon. Mankind suggests that Vince should rehire Austin, because Vince previously fired Foley, and then rehired him, and now they're best pals. He then suggests playing a game, and reaches into his trash bag, and, after a quick commercial break, we cut right back to a close-up camera shot of Mick Foley's ass, since he is now playing Twister by himself. That is certainly a shot I did not expect. And I must remind you that Vince is in a wheelchair, so obviously he couldn't compete in a game of Twister right now, even if he wanted to. An angry Mr. McMahon then finally has enough, and yells at Mick for even thinking of playing games at a time like this, and he kicks Foley out of the room. Apparently for Vince, having no one protecting him is preferable to having mankind protecting him. We then go back to the arena for our next match, Steve Blackman versus Jeff Jarrett. Earlier in the night, we were told that Jarrett would have a special surprise for us, and when he makes his entrance, we find out exactly what that surprise was.
2: And well, here's the surprise, King. Being accompanied to the ring by Deborah yep. McMichael. There it is. From the great state of Tennessee, playing in a at pounds, picked up. Jeff Jarrett! Wow, what I tell you? Look at the looks on these people's faces! Well, and they caught the... Um, Auspicious pair, I'll tell you that. I wonder what the relationship here is between Deborah McMichael and Jeff Jarrett.
1: So for those of you who are not familiar with Deborah, a.k.a. the future real-life Mrs. Austin, she was previously in WCW from 1995 to 1997, where she acted as the valet for her real-life husband, football player-turned-wrestler Steve Mongo McMichael. Having competed in and won several beauty pageants, including 1992's Miss Texas USA contest, she was given a heelish pageant queen gimmick in WCW. However, unfortunately for Deborah and Mongo, they ended up getting divorced, which paved the way for her to leave WCW and head over to the WWF, where she is now paired with Jeff Jarrett. And personally, I find it amusing that she's been put with Jarrett, because when Double J returned to the WWF last year, he cut a work-shoot promo where he talked about how Eric Bischoff buried him in WCW by having him work with Mr. and Mrs. McMichael.
2: Look who you booked me with, an ex-football player who can't even lock up, and his wife, she gives new meaning to the phrase dumb blind.
1: But anyway, let's get into the Jarrett vs. Blackman match. The first thing I'll note at the start of this match is that the literal gold dust which falls from the ceiling during gold dust entrance has seemingly fallen a bit too early because it's all over the canvas when these two are wrestling, so, uh, spoiler for later tonight I suppose. Another thing I will note is that shortly after the match begins, the crowd starts a rather crude chant which is directed at Deborah.
2: Opportunity got to question the wisdom too, him of uh, Mr. McNandy. I can understand he wanted to kick that idiot mankind out there trying to play Quistler, but now he's by himself back there.
1: In case you couldn't quite tell what they were saying, that was a chant of, show your tits, Attitude Era fans, always charming. So the match only lasted about two and a half minutes, but of course, we ended up getting an overbooked ending. After Blackman hit Jarrett with a bicycle kick, The blue blazer ran into the ring and hit Blackman with a belly-to-belly suplex, presumably resulting in a disqualification victory for Steve Blackman. The blazer and Jarrett then started putting the boots to Blackman, and, interestingly, Jarrett looked at the blazer and gave him a nod as though the two of them may have been in on it together. The blazer then headed backstage, so Jarrett went under the ring and grabbed his guitar with the intention of clobbering Blackman with it. However, before he could do that... Al Snow snuck into the ring behind him, along with Head. Snow was going to swing Head at Jarrett, but apparently Head would not cooperate because it was distracted by Debra. Yes, seriously. Snow then stopped to yell at Head, which allowed Jarrett to clobber Snow with the guitar instead. Got all that? I hope so because I feel like I just got Carpal Tunnel typing up the results of the post-match festivities of a contest between two lower mid-carders. To sum it all up, Blackman wins by DQ, Jarrett and the Blue Blazer may have some sort of alliance, Head is apparently a lesbian, and Deborah is now Jarrett's valet. Hashtag Attitude Era Cliff Notes. We then go back to the room where Vince is hiding, and he proceeds to get spooked by the ringing of a telephone. He reluctantly answers it, and when he picks up the receiver, we hear the voice of Stone Cold Steve Austin. His message is a simple one. Quote, Vince, your time's up, you sorry bastard. I'm coming to get you. After a commercial break, Vince is back on the phone, and this time he's talking to his limo driver. He tells him to pull the car up to the back of the arena and keep the back door open, and the driver tells him that Austin is nowhere to be found. From there, we actually get a rather impressive tracking shot, as Vince proceeds to wheel himself around backstage until he goes out back and pulls up to the limousine. Unfortunately, when he arrives, Stone Cold is waiting for him. Austin is dressed completely in camouflage and carrying a crossbow, So I guess we can assume that he threatened the driver and told him not to tell Vince that he was there? It's a bit unclear, but anyway, Austin then grabs Vince's wheelchair and pushes the chairman back into the arena, amusingly bumping his injured ankle into several doors and walls on the way back. Austin eventually takes Vince back into his office and closes the door, and it appears that he now has himself a hostage. After one more commercial break, we then go inside the room where Austin asks Vince if he's ever been hunting. Vince says that he has, but when Austin presses him, he admits that it was actually just a safari. And then, to further intimidate him, Stone Cold pulls out a knife and asks if he thinks it could kill one of the elephants he saw on the safari. So far tonight, we've seen Austin brandishing an assault rifle, a handgun, a crossbow, and now a hunting knife. So at this point, I actually feel like he probably could take out an elephant on his own with all of that weaponry. Maybe someone can pitch that to him as a reality show. That'd be pretty good. We then go back to the arena where it's time for our next match, The Rock vs. Delo Brown, who's accompanied by Mark Henry. The first thing that jumps out at me here is the fact that The Rock has a brand new theme song, and according to the research I've done, this is literally the only time he ever uses it, and probably with good reason. I'll play about 40 seconds of it for you at the tail end of this podcast just so you can hear it, because it's an interesting little curiosity in The Rock's career. But anyway, getting into the match, I must say that I found it funny that the very first chant from the crowd was not Rocky, Rocky, but rather, D'Lo sucks. That has to be a huge feather in D'Lo's cap that he's in there with one of the greatest superstars of all time, but the crowd is directing their chants toward him. Pretty cool. Also, Delo is amusingly still wearing his tights which say European Champion, even though he lost the belt to X-Pac last night. I would fault him for continuing to wear the same gear over and over, but then again, that's kinda his gimmick at this point since he's still rocking that chest protector four months later. So Rock and D'Lo proceeded to have a pretty solid three and a half minute match, and the highlight for me was when the crowd popped huge as Rock picked Delo up for a scoop slam because they knew that the people's elbow would follow it. When the fans are popping huge for a basic move before your signature move, I dare say that's a good sign. The finish came shortly thereafter when Delo jumped off the top rope and went for what I think was supposed to be an axe handle, but Rock caught him, nailed him with a rock bottom, and scored the clean three count over his former Nation of Domination stablemate. However, as soon as the match ended, Mark Henry ran into the ring, and he and Delo then proceeded to beat the crap out of Rock, including Henry hitting him with two big splashes. Eventually, referees came out from backstage, and D'Lo got the last word by looking into the camera and saying, quote, Hey Rock, who laid the smack down on who? Good stuff, and it looks like this rivalry is not quite finished yet. We then cut backstage, where Austin is still holding his knife, and, well, let's just pick it up from there.
0: roster question is: you want to find out just how sharp this knife is? No, 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 please, relax man, did you think I was going to stick your shiny knife in your sorry guts, is that what you thought, you're dumber than I thought you were, I'm going to take you Vince, I'm going to take your ass tonight, but you ain't going to feel a damn thing, and you can rest assured when you go, you go just like that, that's simple man, it's that simple,
1: So, yes, what you just heard was Stone Cold motioning as though he was going to stab Vince, but then he instead stuck the knife into a nearby apple and proceeded to cut it. Of course, Stone Cold then does indeed threaten to kill Vince quickly later tonight, which is somewhat considerate of him, I suppose. From there, we segue back into the arena, where we see that Tiger Ali Singh and Babu are standing in the ring. For those scoring at home, this is the first time we've seen Tiger and Babu on Raw in seven weeks since the post-SummerSlam Saturday night episode of Raw. This time around, Tiger is saying that he considers himself to be a lover of fine food, but here in America, people eat nothing but crap. To drive this point home, Babu is wearing a chef hat and cooking apron, and he's standing next to a barbecue grill with hot dogs and sausages on it. Tiger then says he will pay $500 cash to any American in the crowd who will come into the ring and swallow Babu's kielbasa whole. Amusingly, they pan across the crowd, and almost every man is holding his hands up in the air, which strikes me as pretty funny, considering how homophobic the signs in the crowd are every week. However, instead of choosing a guy, Babu points to a woman in the front row, and the security guy escorts her into the ring. Sure enough, the lovely lady then proceeds to take the entire foot-long kielbasa and shove the whole thing right down her throat with ease. Clearly, Babu appears to have lucked out and picked the right person for the job. Fun fact, this random wiener-loving woman was actually known at the time for her appearances on the Howard Stern Show, where she went by the nickname the Kielbasa Queen. I mean, that is quite the amazing coincidence that a woman known for swallowing kielbasa just so happened to be chosen for a kielbasa swallowing stunt. What are the odds? However, the segment doesn't end there, because The Godfather then emerges from backstage. He informs Tiger that this woman is not just any civilian. She used to be one of his hoes, and as you could see, she was quite good at her chosen profession. She then proceeds to start handing the Godfather some of the $500 she was just given, but Tiger objects and orders Babu to attack him. Godfather easily dispatches Babu with a scoop slam, but before the pimp can get his hands on Tiger, referees head down to ringside and get between them. Perhaps this will actually lead to Tiger having his first match on Raw since April of 1997? I guess we'll find out together. We then go backstage once again, where Stone Cold is still taunting Vince McMahon. Since we last left them, we can see that Austin has shot a crossbow through a nearby picture on the wall in order to further intimidate Vince. And from there, he decides to ramp up his humiliation of the chairman even more.
0: Look at your face. i look at you, and you remind me... You remember that guy, Ned Baby? You remember the movie Deliverance, right? You saw that, you know? Oh, no. Donner, 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 deliverance, right? You saw that? Oh, no. I think I remember You remember the part, po- shut up. You remember the part where he uh, he made the guy squeal? Oh, oh, swir- no. You know, that's-, <laughs> that's what I think I'd like for you to do right now. I was wondering maybe if you could squeal like a pig for me. And I think that you can squeal like a pig, Vince. Do it. Squeal for me. You understand me? I said squeal, son. Start squealing like a pig. Is, is that the best you can do? Give me my damn bow. Are you going to squeal? Are you going to squeal! Squeal! squeal?
1: So, in case you're not familiar with the movie Deliverance, Ned Beatty's character is forced to squeal like a pig while he's being raped in the woods by a mountain man. Now that might seem out of place, but as you may recall, Austin did sexually assault Vince at the end of that hospital beating a few weeks ago, so well, maybe, it's, maybe it's a little more fitting than we thought. From there, Austin then starts talking about another movie, Misery, where Kathy Bates takes a sledgehammer and breaks James Conn's ankles. This causes Vince to start screaming for help, so Stone Cold proceeds to duct tape his mouth shut and then wrap the tape around Vince so that he's stuck in his wheelchair. Austin then tells Vince he's going to go get a sledgehammer, and he'll be back once he finds one. And unfortunately, Triple H is still away rehabbing his knee injury, otherwise Austin's search probably would have been a lot shorter. And so we segue back into the arena, where it's time for our next match, Mankind versus Val Venus, who's accompanied by Terry Runnels. I have to say, all these wrestlers and valets are absolute professionals, considering the fact they can still go out and perform while a hostage situation is going on inside the building consummate professionals. And speaking of being a pro, during Val's pre-match gyrations, he actually sells the fact that his dick is still hurt from Goldust kicking him last night, so kudos to him for making the extra effort there, I guess. Anyway, Val and Mankind perceived to have an okay-ish three-and-a-half-minute match. The finish came when Terry jumped up on the ring apron to distract referee Mike Chioda, but Mankind used that opportunity to bring out Mr. Socko. And by the way, this is the very first time that Mick pulls Socko out of his tights, as you may recall that he was actually wearing Socko on his foot last week before he put it in poor Mark Henry's mouth. So Mick has Socko in Val's mouth behind the ref's back, and that's the cue for Ken Shamrock to come to ringside, wielding a steel chair. Shamrock hits Foley in the knee with it, causing him to fall to the ground. And that allowed Val to fall on top of Mick and hook the leg, and when Kyoto finally turned back around, he made the three count, giving the victory to Val Venus. Shortly after the match ended, Foley rolled outside the ring and started going after Shamrock. Both men went over the barricade and brawled through the crowd all the way to the backstage area, so it appears that their rivalry is far from over. Meanwhile, Val and Terry were still standing back in the ring when... Goldust's music played. However, Goldust did not appear in the arena, but rather on the Titantron, where he told Val that he was going to continue to shatter his dreams over and over again. Val looked upset about this, so Terry leaned in and whispered something into his ear in an attempt to cheer him up, but it apparently had the opposite effect because Val then yelled at Terry and stormed off backstage without her. What could she have possibly said? Stay tuned because, uh, well, it certainly goes an interesting route. After that segment concludes, stop me if you've heard this before, but we go backstage for the further adventures of Stone Cold and Vince McMahon. Austin says that he wasn't able to find a sledgehammer, but he still plans on, quote, carrying out his plans tonight, and when he does, Vince won't feel a thing. Austin then faces Vince toward a television and says he wants to watch the main event with him, so he forces Vince to choose a winner between The Undertaker and Kane, so Vince decides to go with Kane. Stone Cold says that if Kane wins, they'll do things the easy way, but if any other outcome occurs, they'll do things Stone Cold's way instead. And that provides a fitting segue into our main event casket match, The Undertaker accompanied by Paul Bearer versus Kane. My first question would be, since Austin appears intent on murdering Vince, could they just put him into that casket later on tonight? I mean, it would certainly save them the trouble of having to buy another one. Just a thought. Just a thought. So only about two minutes into the match, The Undertaker signaled for the referees at ringside to open the lid, and he then clotheslined Kane over the top rope, where he landed feet first inside of the casket. From there, Kane grabbed Taker's foot and dragged him into the casket as well, and both brothers started brawling. At one point, Taker actually hit Kane with a standing DDT inside of the casket, and that was where things took a turn for the bizarre. The referees then closed the casket lid with both brothers inside for some reason. Normally, the winner of a casket match is the first person to close the lid on the other one, but with both men inside, apparently the match has to continue. So from there, with Taker and Kane still inside, we could see the walls of the casket being kicked down due to the force of both men beating on each other. And sure enough, the casket was eventually completely destroyed by both brothers, presumably meaning that there can be no actual winner unless they have a backup casket lying around somewhere. So Kane and Taker then started brawling with each other at ringside, and Kane proceeded to knock Taker down by ramming him back first into the ring apron. From there, Kane set his sights on Paul Bearer, and he started following his father up the ramp. Meanwhile, Taker had recovered and grabbed a chair, so he smacked Kane in the back with it, knocking him down to the ground. The Undertaker and Bearer then walked backstage together, with Kane soon doing his Michael Myers sit-up routine and following them to the back as well. It should also be noted that you could clearly hear the crowd booing at the end of the segment because, somehow, we just got a no-contest finish, during a casket match. You may not have thought that would have been possible, but I got two words for you. Vince Russo. From there, we once again go backstage with Stone Cold and Vince McMahon. As you know, Vince predicted that Kane would win the match, but since neither man won, Vince has apparently bet his life on the wrong outcome. Austin then tells Vince he has one last thing he needs to do, and the chairman needs to come with him. We then cut back to Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler at ringside, and they play up the severity of the situation for a few minutes until... Austin wheels Vince down the ramp. Stone Cold has his crossbow with him, and he forces Vince to get on his knees in the ring. Austin then cues up footage from earlier tonight where Vince said, McMahon 316 says I've got the brass to fire your ass. So apparently Stone Cold is somehow able to control the production team, even though he's no longer an employee. We can then see that Vince is crying in the ring and Stone Cold proceeds to put some sort of document in the front of McMahon's suit coat. I'm actually not sure what that document is or even if it comes into play at any point in the future, so I guess we'll just have to find out together on that one. Austin then tells Vince to look in the direction of the Titantron so that he can see his own face, and from there, well, it appears as though Stone Cold is ready to finish off Vince McMahon once and for all.
0: Look up at the screen, Vince. Vince. Because your eyes are fixing to pop out of the front of your head. No! Come on, Steve. If you want Vince's eyes to pop out of the front of his head, give me a hell yeah. No! Uh,
2: Steve, take it easy now.
0: It wasn't Stone Cold Steve Austin that screwed Vince McMahon, but it was Vince McMahon that screwed Vince McMahon. I I think you got a little problem there, and I think we got another t-shirt on the way. And I think that t-shirt might just say McMahon 316 Says, I just pissed my pants.
2: Oh no! Oh man, how oh, humiliating, how oh, degrading. Oh, look out! Oh, to Doug McMahon again! This is the most humiliating, degrading night in Vince McMahon's life! The unemployed rattlesnake has struck! He's fired! He's not supposed to even be here.
1: So chances are you've probably already seen this clip if you're an Attitude Era fan, but if you haven't, here's a quick description of what you just heard. After Stone Cold asked the crowd if they want to see Vince's eyes pop out of the front of his head, he pulls out a handgun. He then stands behind Vince, holds the barrel up next to the chairman's head, and pulls the trigger, and a little flag that says Bang 316 pops out. Yes, it turns out that the whole thing was a ruse, and Austin is not actually a disgruntled murderer. From there, as you can hear Stone Cold point out, it becomes apparent that the nervous Mr. McMahon pissed his pants while Austin was threatening him, as we can see that they are completely soaked. To put the cap on the segment, Austin hits Vince with a Stone Cold stunner, and then, right before we go off the air, he actually hits him with one more. The rattlesnake is still fired, but he has certainly gotten quite a bit of vengeance on his arch nemesis. And that is how we go off the air. Ah, but wait, if you're watching on the WWE Network, we actually get two and a half extra minutes of bonus footage called Extra Attitude, which shows what happened after Raw went off the air. So we pick it up with Austin putting his foot on Vince's back, raising his arms in the air, and posing for the crowd before heading backstage. From there, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Commissioner Slaughter come into the ring to help pick up a tearful Vince. Truthfully, I'm not exactly sure why they show this extra footage, because as soon as the Stooges enter the ring, it pretty much devolves into a bunch of the Milwaukee fans pelting them with trash, including one fan who hits Vince right in the ass with a full cup of soda. The Stooges put the chairman in his wheelchair and roll him up the aisle, all while Vince is hamming it up and loudly crying in a very over-the-top manner. And that is how we conclude. But we're not finished yet, so on that note, let's take it to... The Wrap-Up.
2: Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror I freak beat slam it like Iron ain't We dedicated the to casters, been thugging Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind They won't let me back in Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlick Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak Now not a and stone cold on my favorite maniac The top rooster plucking, chickens when they clucking Cause the WWF stands for women where we fucking
1: the ratings recap. Last week, Raw narrowly beat Nitro in the ratings by the score of 4.81 to 4.70, but this week, coming off of Judgment Day and the Stone Cold firing angle, things were not nearly as close. Raw's rating jumped up to a 5.01, while Nitro dropped down to a 4.36, and that now makes five straight victories for the WWF in the Monday Night Wars. And here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro instead. Saturn defeated Kenny Chaos. Damian L. Dandy, Hector Garza, and Psychosis defeated Chavo Guerrero, Ciclope, La Parca, and Lismark Jr. Canyon defeated Scott Putsky. Fit Finley defeated the British Bulldog in what turns out to be Davy Boy's final match on Nitro. Wrath defeated Tokyo Magnum. Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko defeated Alex Wright and Disco Inferno. Chris Jericho defeated Diamond Dallas Page by disqualification to retain his World Television Championship. Kidman vs. Rey Mysterio went to a time limit draw, but check that match out anyway because it's actually really good. Scott Hall, Scott Norton, and Stevie Ray vs. Kevin Nash, Conan, and Lex Luger also went to a no contest. And in your main event, Bret Hart defeated Sting by disqualification to retain his WCW United States Championship. In terms of the storylines on the show, there were a few noteworthy moments. Ernest the Cat Miller challenged a fan to come out from the audience and fight him, and the cat then proceeded to beat his ass. Needless to say, they edit this segment out on the WWE Network, presumably because, you know, it's a horrible idea to encourage fans to jump the rail. Fun fact, though, that fan is actually none other than future WCW slash WWE wrestler Chuck Palumbo. Good times. Fun debut for him there. Also, later on in the night, Hulk Hogan called out his nephew Horace, and then proceeded to beat the shit out of him, including nailing him in the head with a stiff chair shot that left a pool of blood on the canvas. Hogan claimed he did it to send a message to the warrior, if he'll do this to his own family, imagine what he'll do to the warrior this Sunday at Halloween Havoc. And just be sure to remember that little detail for the next episode of this podcast when I cover all the fallout from that legendary pay-per-view. And so from there, let's take it to the Raw synopsis. For the first time in a while, instead of giving Raw a thumbs up, I think I would have to lean thumbs in the middle for this episode. I know it's probably blast for me to say this, but there were far too many of those Austin McMahon backstage segments. Not only that, but they struck a bit of the wrong chord because the Stone Cold character essentially went from being a rebellious redneck to a psychopathic murderer seemingly overnight. Now, granted, we learned at the end of the episode it was all an act, but it kind of set a weird tone throughout the show. As is typical on Raw, none of the matches were very good, and when you deliver a no contest in a casket match between two bitter rivals, that's a pretty big fuck you to the fans who stuck around to watch the main event instead of switching over to Nitro. For my money, what saved the show from being completely forgettable was obviously the final segment with Bang 316 and The Undertaker's promo introducing the Ministry of Darkness, even though he did step over a few of his lines when he was talking. Other than that, most of the show is pretty skippable, so definitely don't go out of your way to watch this one. And before we wrap up, I want to touch on one more thing. In the past four weeks, we've seen four classic moments in the Austin-McMahon rivalry. The Zamboni, the hospital attack, the cement truck, and tonight's Bang 316 prank, so I felt it was only appropriate to head over to Twitter and poll the Raw Attitude podcast fans as to which moment was their favorite. And here are the results. Coming in at 8%, we had tonight's segment with Austin pretending to murder Vince. At 14%, we had Stone Cold filling Vince's car with cement, as Jim Ross put it. At 22%, we had Austin driving the Zamboni into the arena and attacking Vince. But with a whopping 56% of the vote, Stone Cold's hospital beating of Mr. McMahon completely ran away with this poll, and honestly, if I could have voted, that probably would have been the option I would have chosen as well. You just can't compete with a bedpan to the skull. So now, thanks to you, the Raw Attitude podcast fans, we finally solved it. The hospital beating is the greatest moment in the Austin-McMahon rivalry. Thanks a lot for voting. So on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes like our new friend Nort333 did because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so, as promised, I will leave you now with a clip of the theme song that The Rock uses only on this episode of Raw and no other time, and you will certainly be able to figure out why it was only used once when you get a listen to it. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time.
0: You smell what The Rock is cooking? Ha! (laughs) The Rock playing the Smackdown. The Rock says... The Rock says... The Rock says... The Rock rock the rock says the rock says